Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. Welcome and thank you for joining us today. The next hour is devoted to learning something more. Not just about the world of shoes and ships and sealing wax, but about how, what, and why we believe as we do. A time for those willing to question what they think they know or what they may believe. Those willing to be uncertain for an hour. I'm Eldon Taylor and this is Provocative Enlightenment. All right, our chat room is open and my partner Ravinder awaits you there now. You can log on by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. We do have a great chat room, so Ravinder, tell us all about it, please. We have a fabulous chat room. It's the best chat room ever because we have some wonderful people in there. You know, they're smart, they're funny, um, they're spiritual. They all contribute something to the conversation. So I'm always learning a lot. Um, as I said, as I said before, it adds a whole new dimension to the interview that's being aired. So if you can uh, come join us, you know, as long as you're not driving or anything like that, do so. We're at provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. Okay. This week's spotlight is all about the death of reason. A new study reported in Science Alert informs us, and I quote, the issue is that when it comes to facts, People think more like lawyers than scientists, which means they cherry-pick the facts and studies that back up what they already believe to be true. Close quote. Researchers argue that a lot happened in 2016, including fake news, that in aggregate has led to cultural shifts, one of which they say is a new trend referred to as the anti-enlightenment movement. This movement is not based on education or intelligence. Rather, it is based upon bias. That is, as I pointed out before, we want to hear what we already believe, and we easily dismiss anything that challenges this bias. Articulated this way, we find that people will take a flight from facts to protect all kinds of belief, including their religious belief, their political beliefs, and even simple personal beliefs, such as whether they are good at choosing a web browser, said one of the researchers, Troy Campbell, from the University of Oregon. Now, I posted the Science Alert article on my Facebook page, and right away some interesting comments followed, including this one. I reject science because science is ever-changing. Things always seem to wane, flow, be retracted, admitted, plus the amount of data fraud, payoff, etc., to get to set science has disillusioned me to the point where I'm always looking, studying, researching for the truth. Now, for me, this is a bit like throwing the baby out with the bathwater. For how do you search for truth without science? That's not to say that there isn't bad science. For the same bias that infects the thinking of so many, also infects some so-called scientists. Indeed, I recently also posted a report on a fake study published in a referee journal. The title of the article tells all, The Conceptual Penis as a Social Construct, a So-Called Style Hoax on Gender Studies. Quoting from the report that appeared on The Skeptic, Assuming the pen, pen names... Jamie Lindsay and Peter Boyle, and writing for the fictitious Southeast Independent Social Research Group, we wrote an absurd paper loosely composed in the style of post-structuralist discursive gender theory. The paper was ridiculous by intention, essentially arguing that penises shouldn't be thought of as a male genital organ, but as damaging social constructions. We made no attempt to find out what post-structuralist discursive gender theory actually means. We assumed that if we were merely clear in our moral implications that maleness is intrinsically bad and that the penis is somehow at the root of it, we could get the paper published in a respectable journal. It gets worse. Not only is the text ridiculous, so are the references. 
Most of our references are quotations from papers and figures in the field that barely make sense in the context of the text. Others were obtained by searching keywords and grabbing papers that sounded plausibly connected to words we cited. We read exactly zero of the sources we cited by intention as a part of the hoax. Close quote. Now, in their expose, the authors give two reasons for their hoax. One, the pretentious nonsense that often passes for scholarship in postmodern studies. And two, the lax standards of some peer-reviewed journals. Now, as ridiculous as it may sound, this paper actually argued that it is the penis that causes global warming. Clearly, bias influences everything, but that is exactly why reason becomes so important. When you throw science out, you have tossed the baby, for it is the scientific method that invalidates nonsense. The fact is, the scientific method is nothing more than an extension of logical principles applied to observable phenomena. If we are to discard science and its methods, then how are we ever to discern nonsense from verifiable fact? Bad science is rooted out by true science. It's that simple. My suggestion, use your intellect to question your biases. Be willing to suspend belief long enough to challenge your ideas with reasonable alternatives. Don't assume that you already know everything unless you can walk on water. And don't accept everything that you're told, regardless of who tells you. The fact is, life is a learning opportunity of nothing else. God did not plague our species with the ability to think. My thoughts, what are yours, Ravinder? I think this is uh, all really important material. Um, I'm trying to figure out whether things are worse today or it's just that we're more aware of it, but there does seem to be a sh shutting down of thinking, of uh, thinking an argument through or trying to understand the truth behind an argument. People do just grab onto, you know, sound bites and memes and they run away with it and they think they have all the answers. So there is a great deal of cherry picking of facts, uh, facts out there. They just grab onto whatever it is. And the research you talk about, the conceptual penis, apart from being incredibly funny, um, is so valid. You know, what they did, from my understanding, when I looked through it as well, is that they were looking at, you know, if it's uh, politically correct, if it's the popular idea out there, you know, could they pass it through even though it was full of garbage and words that didn't necessarily make any sense? And, and the fact is it did. And so that, that does show you how bad the problem is. I'm just not sure how long the problem has gone on for because the original research was done quite some time ago, I believe. I think it probably is more pernicious today and more widespread. But, you know, the bottom line is we tend today to defend a bias. And so what these authors did is they identified a bias and they fed that bias by supporting it with an argument that, you know, would, those that were so biased would say, yeah, right on. And it became a published paper in a referee journal, actually two journals, which, you know, is an embarrassment to science and should be an embarrassment to any intellectual who is willing to suspend the bias in order to examine the facts and i would hope that's all of us that's why we have a brain okay every week i read some of your letters as our way of involving you while paying respect to the very important role you play in making this show successful last week our show featured garnett schulhauser peggy wrote schulhauser seemed genuine but his message is really confusing and difficult to accept i find it really hard to believe that the source created everything without an ambition of good Beth wrote, if God did not want you to enjoy sex, he would not have made it fun. So if God did not want evil on the earth, he would not have made it. Why then is there evil? CB commented, this might be right up, this might be right up there with that woman who was trying to explain her book support with quantum physics that she could not explain. You remember that interview, don't I you? I do. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, if just... 
Some people use words. I think that's what you said. They just use they just because it sounds words. good. They have no idea what they mean, and when you start questioning them, they just come apart. All right. Chase wrote, "This guy has been deceived by Satan." I don't know about that, Chase. He seemed pretty sincere, but I, I have problems with his conclusions as well. Richard added, "My friends who had a spirit guide, my friend singular." was taken somewhere to be a spirit guide. When the guide took him down, the spirit guide's white clothes fell off and revealed a creepy-looking creature. My friend shouted the name of Jesus and restored to his body immediately. You make of it what you will, Satan is misunderstood. But if this guy's right, God is one dispassionate jerk. Moving on, Nadia Road. I am from the UK and I'm a great fan of your subliminal CD programs. I have used them for years with excellent results. Julia wrote, how interesting that you and David Icke are so much on the same page in this way. Our world is a mirror and reflection of our thoughts. We have amazing powers as humans to completely change and heal ourselves just by healing our subconscious programming, which in most of us is a mess. I know I felt that way my whole life, raised by a sociopath mother and a violent alcoholic father, until I started doing some serious work on myself which included using your inner talk CDs. My youngest brother, AMD, could not believe the positive changes. He and my husband were so impressed that they started using them too. I recently turned a therapist friend onto them. You and Ravinder and your work are doing much to free humanity by giving us key to free us from prison of BS, mind programming, and the damage it does. That's a nice letter. I like that. I do indeed. All right. That's all the time we're going to take for letters today, but I do invite you to opine by emailing me at Eldon, that's E-L-D-O-N, at EldonTaylor.com, or by joining me on Facebook. We sincerely appreciate your comments, feedback, and continued support. Now to this week's show, the China Study, with our special guest, Professor Colin Campbell. I must tell you that I have really been looking forward to this show, but when my pretty bride first gave me the book, I so strongly resisted what she told me it was about that, well, BS, that's what I thought. That can't be true. But I did my homework and followed my own advice to maintain an honest, open mind. I so strongly resisted the conclusions offered by our guests that I searched for legitimate objections and found none with any real traction. Oh, there are plenty of folks, many of which are so-called experts, who object to his findings, and one even argues over his statistical method. But bottom line, this gentleman is going to tell you how it is, period, full stop. He will challenge everything you think you know about nutrition. I'm a convert, and I believe if you read nothing else this year, you must read his book, The China Study. So let me tell you a little about him. Dr. T. Colin Campbell has been at the forefront of nutrition research for more than 40 years. His legacy, the China Project, is the most comprehensive study of health and nutrition ever conducted. He is a professor emeritus at Cornell University and is most well-known for co-authoring the best-selling book, The China Study, with his son, Dr. Thomas Campbell, M.D., In addition to his long and outstanding career as an author, scientific researcher, and Cornell professor, he has been featured in several documentary films. He is the founder of the T. Colin Campbell Center for Nutrition Studies and the online internationally recognized plant-based nutrition certificate offered by the T. Colin Campbell Center for Nutrition Studies in partnership with E. Cornell. He currently serves as the chairman of the board. So on that, let's get him in here. Welcome to Provocative Enlightenment, Professor Colin Campbell. Thank you very much. Thank you, sir. It is a, I, I feel a great opportunity to be able to discuss your work. But to begin with, we seek to learn three things on this show. Who is the messenger? What is the message? And how do we use it? And to that end, and to, and to develop the proper context... Let's begin by having you tell us about your life on the farm. Yes, well, I was raised on a dairy farm. I was the first in my family to even go to college, let alone graduate school. And so, um, in any case, um, 
like everyone else, I thought the best diet was the good old American diet, you know, high in fat, high in protein, and so forth. And, uh, and then when I did my doctoral dissertation in graduate school, I actually uh, did a project uh, to try to uh, sort of emphasize that point, if you will, to even improve on the production of that kind of food. Uh, however, I, I then got involved in doing some work uh, in a program in the Philippines that was designed to uh, improve the nutritional lot of poor children, uh, especially starving, malnourished children, uh, and saw something different. Really, was challenging that you know consuming a high protein diet was not the best thing uh, to do, especially in terms of cancer, which was another specialty of mine. Uh, so I, I came home from that. Uh, to the university, got myself an NIH grant that lasted for the next 27 years, just probing that question. Namely, uh, is it really true, for example, that consuming more protein actually increases cancer risk? I mean, a very provocative idea. I mean, I thought it was crazy. But in any case, I got the money. As I say, I kept getting it renewed for the next 27 years. We published a lot of research. Uh, it was done as best as we could, very professional research, published in peer-reviewed journals, and finally ended up uh, believing quite convincingly that consuming a diet high in protein, and that by, by that I mean animal-based protein, consuming a diet high in, in that kind of uh, food um, actually is not in our best interest. It does, in fact, uh, you know, increase the risk for heart disease, cancer, diabetes, and a whole host of uh, illnesses that we have in our society and in other Western societies. And so we really got into the weeds on this. I'm a biochemist by training as well. And so I wanted to know, you know, how does this work? Uh, you know, mechanistically, like we like to say, what are the what are the key mechanisms that account for this effect? And so we worked on that and we looked for mechanisms, uh, you know, as to how that might work. And it seemed like every time we looked for one, we found one. Uh, it became rather frustrating, to be honest about it, and not knowing what to do next. But you see, if we if we could understand what the mechanism is, a very traditional question, then we might be able to, let's say, develop a drug, you know, to counter that effect. I mean, that's the basis for the entire pharmaceutical industry. Uh, in any case, uh, I finally realized that there is no such thing as a single mechanism, uh, and. Instead, there are almost, if you will, countless so-called mechanisms that involve each of the nutrients. And there's not just 20 or 30 or 40 nutrients. There's hundreds of thousands of chemicals in food that act like new nutrients. And so you start putting all of this together. Uh, I finally ended up um, doing a study in China, a very large study, a comprehensive study there with my colleagues from uh, Oxford and also from China, to understand why it was that um, cancer was so common in certain areas of China and much less common in other areas. Uh, and so we did there again a very comprehensive, exhaustive kind of study, measuring a ton of different things, looking at all kinds of disease outcomes. And we got support from that study that agreed with what I was seeing in the laboratory, uh, which uh, finally led to my writing a book uh, of my experiences in uh, 2005. And there you have it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I want to unpack all of that as we you know, proceed in the show, particularly the part about reductionism. But, but first, you heard today's spotlight, Professor, and you've had your own academic pursuit, curtailed or blocked in many ways. So let's begin there, because I think some of the, you know, one of the problems the public has is, look, you know, that isn't what anybody else says. So please share with us how academia fails to serve the public's best interest and how much influence special interests have on research, publications, inquiry at large. Well, I have to go back to the question concerning uh, what is science, and I really enjoyed your uh, opening comments before I got on the show. Um, science, uh, as practiced in academia or most other institutions, at least in this area, I'll stick to this area for the moment, biology, nutrition, medicine, if you will. Uh, that kind of research is very reductionist. You know, it's a very fundamental idea that, that if we can find specific causes of specific events or outcomes or diseases, as you will, uh, then, as I said before, we can come up with some kind of antidote. We can make a, make a drug or take a nutrient supplement or something like that 
you know, to, uh, you know, correct the situation. Uh, and uh, that's not right. Um, and so what happens in uh, traditional science circles, most scientists in this area are actually, um, they're tech, I'm, I'm going to say, it's a rough term, but they're technologists. They're not scientists. Science for me is the art of observation uh, in an ancient tradition, and I think it's consistent yes. with what you were talking about before. You, you see something, you look at it from a holistic perspective, if you will, uh, and then science should set about trying to understand, if they, if they can, you know, what makes all that possible. Um, it, in, in a sense, it's deductive reasoning. You look at the whole, you start sorting out the parts to see if everything fits together. In, in contrast, uh, research in this area generally starts from the bottom up. Somebody decides that this nutrient or that chemical or whatever uh, looks like it's a good thing, uh, and they start, you know, making the big story with a bunch of, um, you know, uh, isolated facts, right. essentially. And that's a very risky thing to do. It's just a result of that. What happens by taking that very reductionist, bottom-up kind of approach, you know, looking at the parts to make the whole, when we do that, we are open up a vast opportunity for making and, and really confusing the public. And that's really what's happened. And so uh, that kind of research is supported by public money, unfortunately. NIH, for example, uh, you know, more or less leans on that, that philosophy. And it was NIH that supported virtually all of my research over the years. It was fairly generous. But, that you know, we have in academia and science in general leaned on that, that uh, concept of uh, working bottom-up, you know, reductionist, if you will, inductive reasoning. Um, and uh, what I came to understand was that, uh, and I did that too, by the way, and, and uh, what I came to understand, it's, it's the wrong way around. And so, for example, in the case of nutrition and health, uh, if we use whole foods, you know, as nature provides them, you know, containing, you know, infinite numbers of chemicals of various varieties in those foods, it's not a, it's not a simple product. And then recognize that all these things are working together. That therefore, uh, we just might be able to do some exciting things. And in fact, that's what we do. We, we, we can cure heart disease, to be honest about it. Uh, we, can, we can do all kinds of fascinating things these days, you know, taking that approach. So, in answer to your question, I'm sorry I wandered so far, but. No, no, uh, that's good. In, in, in academia, we're, we're relying on getting funding from. Very reputable research organizations, without a doubt, uh, because that's the way people believe. Uh, and, and some money from industry, unfortunately. I don't. I never did. But uh, there is, a, uh, you know, that kind of funding available. And we tend to end up trying to prove, you know, our biases, really what it comes down to. And, uh, and, and we work, uh, as I say, as technologists, not as scientists. And, yeah. One of the things that I th I think, you know, uh, I was surprised to discover in your book, and I consider myself an educated person, uh, was, you know, I, I mean, I thought, why hasn't this knowledge been put forward before? I mean, when, what's taken so long? I mean, and, and then, of course, you bring out that, you know, there's nothing really new about uh, plant-based whole food recommendations or admonitions to avoid um, animal protein, Seneca, Pythagoras, Socrates, Hippocrates, on and on, uh, 3,000 and more years ago were, were admonishing that. How, how do we miss it? Is it just that it's not a popular idea as far as the cereal company that wants you to have their post-toasties in the morning or the pharmaceutical company? What's your opinion there? Well, way back in the early 80s, when I was uh, on a National Academy of Science panel uh, on, working on diet and nutrition cancer questions, this was the first of its kind, by the way, at that time, very popular uh, you know, report that came out. Um, I was uh, quite visible in all of that effort. There was a committee of 13, and, and uh, I'd given testimony before congressional committees and that sort of thing. And I, what, what happened was that I really started getting some tremendous pushback from sources unknown almost, uh, although I still knew where they were. It was kind of discouraging. I couldn't believe the vitriol and the hostility, you know, simply saying that, you know, we ought to eat more vegetables and fruits and grains. There's, there's something fairly simple. 
Uh, and that was only part of the message I came to really know. But in any case, I then ended up at Oxford University for sabbatic in 1985-86. I decided at that time that the heat was really on. I was experiencing all kinds of nonsense um, that should never have happened. I decided to go into the libraries to see what the history might look like in this area. The history particularly concerning nutrition as a science, mm-hmm. and the history concerning cancer, especially as a science. And what I found was just staggering. Uh, and the history that I'm talking about, it goes back to the 1700s. And finally, at the end of the year, I had myself a paper, presented some of it, but I never published it. And uh, just uh, recently, I got that paper, dusted it off, and now have divided it up and have begun to publish it. And the first portion is just was published yesterday, actually. Uh, but what I, what I learned in the whole process in that history, I learned what were the roots of this misguided thinking we now have these days. As I said, really focused on reductionist approaches. The reductionist approach is supported by, uh, by a society that uses commercial interests as the primary driving force you know, for what they choose to do or not do. And that, that's been very devastating for the practice of medicine and, and nutrition. And so nutrition is, is uh, in contrast, very, uh, in, in indicated nutrition is a holistic science, everything working together. That's the way we got fashioned over evolutionary times. And so uh, there it is. Uh, but nutrition, you know, doesn't lend itself to, for example, the practice of medicine. Medicine is about giving individual chemicals. We call them drugs. That's where we, we now have fancy names like targeted drug therapy or precision medicine initiative is one of the most recent things, uh, where all of that kind of philosophy and that kind of uh, scientific practice, in a sense, is intended to build up the base for arguing for chemicals as a means of treatment. And uh, so it's, 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 a grand, it's a very grand play uh, for the pharmaceutical companies, and uh, that's not the way to go. It simply is not. I don't deny that you know some drugs are useful, of course, uh, but we need to use them judiciously. Uh, it's not a lifestyle. It ought not to be a lifestyle. Uh, we can actually now, as I say, we can reverse heart disease almost completely for almost everyone. This, this is really incredible. The evidence that that, that we see. And uh, the same as type 2 diabetes specifically, but also, um, quite frankly, a broad array of diseases and disease-like conditions. And the cancer question, uh, we need more research on that, but of the evidence that we now know, uh, I'm sure we can do the same thing. In fact, we're mounting work on that right now, a fairly robust kind of research um, program. We've got a break coming up. Professor, and I, I want to dig down deeper into all of this, but if I understand you, we don't have the facts because of special interests. And, and, and I suppose in what comes to my mind is I remember when vegetarian movement started to gain some, some traction in the States, the American Beef Council came out with ads, you're not a man if you don't eat beef, and that kind of thing. But let's pick that up after the break. We're speaking with Professor T. Colin Campbell about his challenging research and informative book, The China Study. You can learn more about him and his work by visiting his website at nutritionstudies, one word, nutritionstudies.org. Now, we have a video for you in the chat room featuring our guests discussing the disinformation around milk. So if you're not in the chat room already, now's the time to get on over there and you can do that by simply going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. We'll be right back. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. A silent battle has been raging for the territory of your mind. Like a virulent virus, the effects are spreading. In Gotcha, Eldon Taylor explores the 24-7 bombardment of information designed to manage your thinking. He demonstrates how new sound bites are championed into personal awareness, becoming memes of the culture. And this results in framing and reframing classical positions, causing adjustments to personal values and history itself. 
Your every decision process is being managed and manipulated. Gotcha exposes the arrival of the Orwellian age in full-blown technicolor. In laying bare the current uses of the many sophisticated techniques, Elden reveals what it is we need to do in order to avoid allowing others to puppet our thoughts. For details, go to eldentaylor.com backslash gotcha. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Elvin Taylor. Welcome back. If you've just joined us, we're chatting with Professor T. Colin Campbell about his research and informative book, The China Study. Once again, if you only read one book in this next year, read this book. It may challenge you just like it did me, but you owe it to yourself. And, you know, if you read this book and you find evidence that suggests this man and his findings, I mean, solid evidence, boy, I'd like to know about it because I couldn't find it. It will change your life. You can learn more about our guest and his work by visiting his website at nutritionstudies.org. Now we ask our guests for their favorite music, music that has some true significance to them. Music psychology is a field of research with practical relevance in many areas, including intelligence, creativity, personality, and social behavior. It is also the subject of a new book I'm working on, and our guests... Whether they know it or not, when they come on the show, give us their music. And in that sense, they're actually participating in our research. So we just played some of Tiff Merritt performing Icarus. Tell us, Professor, why is this music important to you? And how does it inform us about who you are? Well, uh, I heard that recently, incidentally, and I heard someone singing who was really a, a very good singer. Uh, and the story with it, uh, which I had not been familiar with, but... Uh, I did understand it to be, you know, uh, essentially a story about excessive hubris, uh, you know, and, and that sort of thing, which, in fact, uh, you know, infects too many people. And uh, I know in science, uh, the system that we now have, when I say science, I'm talking about medical science in particular, but biomedical science in general, uh, we, we get these ideas and uh, we get so fixated on them. And we get to quite frankly quite arrogant about what the ideas people do, especially if there's a, some money to be made with the idea. Uh, and, uh, and and so it, it just sort of feeds upon itself. We our, our emotions feed upon itself and and drives us to do the things that really aren't rational, and are certainly not helpful and not even moral, quite frankly. You know, in, in the things we do. And so um, when I heard that that song sung. Not very long ago, I thought, "Wow, this is this is just pretty much what 
I have seen. Uh, I've, in science, I've operated not only at the university level, but I've also been on national panels and, you know, done things like give testimony before congressional committees and that sort of thing. I've had an opportunity to work at fairly senior levels in uh, the formulation of food and health policy. And what I see there is a policy that's, you know, kind of thing the information of the public is rather corrupted. And as a result, uh, you know, the, the hubris, if you will, the story of Icarus, uh, that, you know, unfortunately has infected our, our trade. I mean, I, I love science. I love science in the sense that, uh, you know, we form hypotheses, we should have open minds, uh, and basically either prove or disprove, you know, what we're thinking. And we do that by comparing notes with colleagues and, and, and that kind of thing. I like that. It's fun, debating, if you will. But unfortunately, too much of science, especially in the medical arena, is a result of extraordinarily powerful forces, you know, that are held very tightly by people who are personally gaining, you know, from that information. Right. Right. So I, I'm being a little bit superficial about this, but um, that's what I've seen working all the way from the laboratory to the to the government, um, you know, we power irrigate, Perhaps we irrigate too much specialness to us and uh, attempt to fly a little higher than we should. And in that sense, uh, as Icarus <clears throat> damaged the whole field, the whole profession. Have I got that yeah. pretty close? Yeah, yeah. Okay, sir, I don't want this to be a commercial for your book, and on the other hand, I'm afraid, you know, I have to just admit it is, because after reading your book, and again, I went out there and I went through all these folks, you know, from the Dr. Merkelos and the, and the Atkins and whatnot, they would say something, but... You know, they had opinions, and okay, that's great, it's an opinion, but it wasn't based on any solid anything. However, there was one criticism that I did come across that was a data-oriented criticism. And I read the criticism, and I also read your response, and of course, her rebuttal to your rebuttal. Tell us about that in in and kind of clear it up, because there's so many people out there that want to resist this. And at the same time, I have to tell you, after reading your book, I can look at foods that I might have bought and, and prepared for my sons and think, that's poison. I, I mean, they, you know, it's a pretty compelling. So dismiss for us this uh, body of so-called intellect out there that wants to challenge the findings in your book. Tell us about what this uh, data stuff is all about. I think you're probably talking principally about a, a, a report that came out shortly after a book was published in 2005, some years ago now. And uh, it was a young woman who wrote well, spoke well, appeared to be you know, quite uh, rational and literate and so forth. Um, and uh, she put something online uh, that was, uh, she thought was very challenged for the idea. Uh, but she was actually, and basically, uh, obviously her point of view was that I didn't do the science right, I drew wrong conclusions, I was inferring causation from correlations, you know, with collection channel, that's the nonsense. I didn't do that. Um, but uh, then I learned also that she was saying everything that a very powerful lobbying group in Washington wanted said, basically. She and another, and then I found out a little more. Uh, she had, she was a graduate in journalism, or English, I can't remember which, but not enough science. And uh, she came out, and as I say, she used her skills, her writing skills, uh, to good effect, I think, for a lot of people. But she was just flat out wrong. Uh, she was actually supporting the alternative view uh, that basically people like McCullough and Atkins and, and Taubes and many others sort of support, namely that the best kind of diet is a low-carb diet. That's just been this fancy word for it ever since about the 1970s. And uh, the low-carb diet is one uh, where they uh, are making the statement that all these recent years where we see obesity increasing, diabetes increasing, so forth and so on, they say that's attributed to the consumption of high-carbohydrate diet. Therefore, we should use low-carbohydrate diet. Well, when they said that, 
There's a lot of truth in some of that if they were only talking about the refined carbohydrates like sugar and white flour and so forth, mm-hmm. which is not part of whole food, really, not, not standing alone. So that, that, that idea of uh, you know, criticizing high-carbohydrate diets, if, in fact, they're talking about refined carbohydrate diets, it can go along, go along with that uh, to some extent. Uh, but when they talk about low-carb diets, then by necessity, almost by definition, that means a diet high in protein and fat. Because those are the only three uh, nutrient groups that have uh, energy in them, except for alcohol. But in any case, uh, what they were really supporting was the consumption of diets high in protein and fat, which means animal-based food. And then all of a sudden you see their connection with the animal food industry. It all starts falling in place. And uh, so I I wrote a book, a little book actually, called Low Carb Fraud, you know, just trying to point this out, that there was an alternative agenda and all of that. Well, this young woman, in any case, four or five years later, went on the Internet and actually apologized, essentially, for what she had said. Um, and uh, there you have it. I, I, uh, I've been, uh, people have been sniffing at my heels a little bit by, by reading that because it's published. It's, it's well written. I have to admit it's well written. But she's made a lot of citations in that analysis of hers. Uh, and she had help, by the way, <laughs> doing all this. In that analysis, she was saying that I was inferring causation just from correlation. Well, I know that's not, we don't do that. I mean, right. I've lectured on that material. That's nonsense. Uh, right. So uh, that kind of hangs around. Internets have a way of you know, so, that. So here's line. the bottom line that I want our listening audience to understand. There's one piece of data out there that would attract the scientists to look at. And that's this statistical analysis that the professor just went through. And yet it's cited by a number of other people as here it is, the gold standard, the definitive rebuttal. And I doubt they've even read it unless they have an agenda of their own. They're selling their own diet or something because there just simply isn't a rebuttal out there. That's what I wanted to get out, professor. Um, I have to I have to reiterate, your book has changed my life. I lost six pounds in the first two weeks, and most of it came off my belly. I can't tell you how happy that made me. Um, I ran just yesterday. I found my maximum heart rate on the hills. where And, and this is a path that we run about a three-mile path quite frequently. We run between three miles and 12K, my wife and I. And uh, this particular path... This, the, the steepest hill, my heart rate will get 136 to 148, depending on the heat and other. Con- it was consistently under 120. My wife first followed your recommendations, and her RA numbers fell dramatically. In fact, Ravinder, share your experiences of what you um, changes in your life as a result of going on his diet. Do you mind, Professor, if I just give her that time to share? Yeah, uh, my, it's sort of simple. I mean, I we I was from a farm, as I said, and my wife and I uh, ate just like everyone else. Uh, and along about 1980, when some of this evidence that we were getting began to challenge my own prejudice, uh, we started changing a bit, a little bit at a time, and and uh, started eating more vegetable, more uh, salads. But that meant chicken salads and tuna salad uh, wasn't much of a much of a change. But Finally, after about 10 years, I think, as getting the China study in, looking at other data, I was really convinced that the whole food, plant-based diet, as we call it, uh, you know, with no added oil and, and that sugar, very little if possible, uh, that that could do wonderful things. And then I, I happened to have been uh, uh, introduced to a couple of clinicians at that time who were doing that, you know, as clinicians in their own places. Uh, certain Dr. John McDougall, for example, in California, Dr. Colbert Esselstyn in Cleveland Clinic, Dr. Dean Ornish. I mean, these folks were, were doing some things, uh, just just taking people and giving them this kind of diet and seeing these remarkable results, reversing heart disease, diabetes, and so forth. And uh, so I, I, be, I made friends with them, and, and uh, we started comparing notes. And so we then we personally really changed. We changed completely. And my wife was very good about this. She... Uh, She's a good cook, and she really took all this very seriously, and she started changing our diet. And finally, we got to a place where the food is actually actually tastes better. 
Uh, it does mar- marvelous things. Uh, we have a good-sized family. We've got five children, grown children, who are actually most of them are involved in doing something along these lines professionally. And uh, we're, we're all of us, all 20 of us, actually, grandchildren and so forth, we, uh, we're 100%, all of us. And I, I just, I mean, I just find it amazing. I'm 83 now, and I don't take any drugs, no supplements, occasionally some B12. And uh, I, I can easily run two and a half, three miles. You know, stay. Uh, and there, there you have it. I, I just, I can't. I don't know. I, I don't anymore. When I start going on about this, I feel like somebody's going to think that I'm not a scientist any longer. I've become kind of faith-based person or something. Yeah, but, uh, I don't think that at all. I don't. I don't think I don't, anyone don't that reads much. your book will think that at all. I do think you're passionate about it, and I think you should be. And I think we all should be aware of it. But you, you mentioned two things uh, that distract me, I guess. And I'm, I'm just going to pull you back to him. Dr. McDougall, um, tell us about his fate. Well, Dr. McDougall, as I say, made friends with him in the early 90s. He had a radio show at the time and called me up. And, and uh, then I learned he had had this clinic. That he was running more or less um, in California, down in Santa Rosa, north of San Francisco. And uh, he's done that for all these years. Uh, and then, more recent years, he's been sponsoring uh, conferences, bringing in some people to talk about various contemporary things, challenging things. And uh, John became a, a good friend. Um, and what he was actually showing is that when people use this kind of diet, uh, you know, they correct a lot of illnesses, and they do it fairly quickly. So I, I want to give him a lot of credit. He, When he was young, I think he was 19 or something of that sort, he was doing all the wrong things to, to tell the story, I guess, and and uh, he had a stroke, of all things. Got his setting back, but left uh, some injury there. and uh, But he stuck with it, and he's now in his about 70 or so, I think. And he's, he's stuck to his gun. He's, he's a courageous fellow. He speaks out. Uh, and... Uh, Sometimes pretty, he's pretty provocative. Sometimes he challenges people, but he's, he's a good guy. He's really well, well motivated. He's doing good stuff. So I, I consider him a really good friend and colleague. Dr. Yeah. Ornish uh, did something very similar. I mean, he publishes some of the stuff in Dr. Essel's in Cleveland Clinic. Wow, he some of his uh, studies are now long range, and they involve even hundreds of people. And and I, I sort of see what they do in the clinic. It's all consistent with what I was doing in the laboratory. Uh, you know, in, in science, and the two sort of, you know, hung in the two ideas. It was one idea, you know, it sort of examined two different ways. But in any case, uh, between us, I mean, we have evidence that right now ought to be transforming the world. And so we're we're running upstream, um, you know, a lot of cases. There's people who want to change, and we have a lot of, you know, uh, people who are trying to protect their products and services and things like that. But uh, so be it. I, I you we're all, uh, all doing the same thing. When you when you read your book, when you look at the studies, and then when you go out as I did, and you look at McDougal's and Ornish or uh, Esselstein's uh, work, uh, you, you see a number of diseases that are just reversed. Uh, I don't want to use the word cure. We maybe that would be appropriate, but they just cease to exist. And some of them are patients that. Uh, one physician says you need open heart surgery, and instead of having that, they change to the plant-based whole food, follow the instructions of of Esselstein, and the plaque disappears. They they no longer need the surgery. In in just to, you know, tell us uh, list if you will the number of diseases that you have seen implicated as a result of animal protein that can be ameliorated, even reversed as a result of uh, your plant-based uh, whole food diet. Absolutely. And and it has a lot of relevance these days for two other big problems, by the way. Uh, if, you can, if you don't mind, I'd like to mention them. One is uh, the environment. Uh, we have now really substantial evidence showing that uh, most of the climate change we're now experiencing, the numbers vary, but... Uh, it's a huge proportion of the changes that we see actually relates to the food that we're eating, believe it or not. That was initially started by a World Bank um, advisor on the environment, 
uh, quite frankly. But in any case, uh, that, you know, just raising livestock, just raising livestock, and that causes all kinds of environmental damage, uh, and uh, that, that's a big issue. More people need to know about that. So we eat right, we get a better environment. And, and I think we can change the environment much more quickly by just making that decision and change it that way. The other issue that is ominous is the cost of health care. We have now this ridiculous debate that's been going on for I don't know how long. Um, you know, that the Obamacare, this is that. People and, and the two sides of that debate, if, if not more, that, well, all they're talking about is who's going to pay the future bill. They're not talking about how to make people well. It's, it's an insane you know, situation we're now in. And um, so cost of health care, obviously, uh, you know, violence against other sentient beings, that's been around for you know, quite a long time. Uh, that's another issue. Uh, that it, it all comes in a big, big package. And, and it, all we need to decide to do is eat right, feel better, for starters, live longer, and uh, and then just you know appreciate what we're doing for our environment. You'll, and other you'll be a happy camper as a result. I hate to cut you off, Professor. Uh, perhaps we can get you back here another time, but we're out of time. The book is the China Study. You've heard my endorsement. Go to the website nutritionstudies.org. You owe it to yourself. Believe me. Thank you for your work, Professor, and for your willingness to share it with us. I really appreciate your time on this show. Well, we've come to the end of another episode of Provocative Enlightenment. I want to thank all of you for joining us today. I hope you enjoyed our show and will join us again next week, same time and same place. And do tell your friends. Let's have them join us as well. Okay, until next time, wherever you are in the world, remember, believing in yourself always matters. Provocative Enlightenment has been brought to you by Progressive Awareness Research and other sponsors. Provocative Enlightenment is a syndicated show and appears on other networks. For a schedule of showtimes, visit ProvocativeEnlightenment.com. If you're interested in becoming a sponsor, write to Eldon at EldonTaylor.com.